Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and today I am really excited to be here with Dr. Tom Gilliams. And let me give you a little bit about his background. He's one of the really smart behind-the-scenes guys in, um, in the functional medicine community. You may know him, but if not, I'm really excited to be introducing you to him. Dr. Gilliams is a PhD, and he earned his doctorate from the Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, where he studied molecular immunology in the microbiology department. Since 1996, he's spent his time studying the mechanisms and actions of natural-based therapies and is an expert in the therapeutic use of nutritional supplements. As Vice President of Scientific Affairs at Orthomolecular Products, he's worked with thousands of integrative and functional medicine clinicians and has developed a wide array of products and programs that allow clinicians to use nutritional supplements and lifestyle interventions as safe, evidence-based, and effective tools for their patients. I just want to throw into Tom's bio that he happens to be the author of the Standard Roadmap series of books. This is a great, great, great resource for us. Um, I have actually dog-eared copies of his books in my office here. We're going to be talking about the newly released GI uh, roadmap book today, and we're going to actually be talking about some concepts from that book today. But he's also got a pretty fabulous um, HPA book. It's specifically, it's called The Role of Stress in the HPA Axis in Chronic Disease Management. It's just a great book, and I will uh, hopefully be podcasting with Tom on that in the future. He's also got a great immunology book, too, Supporting Immune Function, a Lifestyle and Nutrient Approach. These aren't huge tomes, folks. These are really clinically friendly um, you know, relatively slender volumes. However, they're potently evidence-informed, and there are lots of clinical uh, Monday morning actionable things for us. I think Tom's done a really good job of gleaning what we need to know as clinicians, meaty, but also user-friendly. So check those out. Um, Tom's also a teacher at University of Wisconsin uh, School of Pharmacy, where he ha holds an appointment as adjunct assistant professor, and he teaches also at the University of Minnesota School of Pharmacy. Uh, he's on faculty at Metabolic Medicine Institute, which is um, formerly the Fellowship in Anti-Aging, Regenerative, and Functional Medicine. Uh, Tom, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you, Kara. Just move into the microphone a little bit. Okay. Can you there hear me? you are. Yep. Yep. Okay. You're great. Stay there. <laughs> okay. uh, listen, I just really appreciate those roadmap books, and I and I hope that uh, clinicians take it to heart and and decide to buy these because you've really done a great job. I know you just got through telling me that you spent a year writing this GI book and that you reviewed over a thousand pieces of literature, and I I get it, and I want to pick your brain. Um, I want to pick your brain on it. Uh, and talk about a handful of really important issues. We don't have enough time to get into everything that's in this book, but let's just jump in and begin a discussion around um, digestion. And uh, specifically, let's talk about hypochlorhydria. Okay. You know, give me an overview of it, and then I'll throw some questions. Um, so, well, well, thank you. Um, you know, this is an area... Obviously, GI is a is a huge area where many many clinicians have uh, been told for years, you know, treat the gut first, understand the gut, and um, the area of when we think of hypochlorhydria making or achlorhydria not making enough uh, stomach acid or maybe making no stomach acid. This has been kind of one of those things that uh, if you've been around the functional medicine integrative alternative medicine community has been a uh, a discussion for you know several decades. Mm -hmm. um, some people assuming that everyone has low stomach acid or certainly uh, low stomach acid as you age, um, and then something needs to be done about it. Either, um, you know, you need to change the diet, add something to the diet, supplement, or, you know, use um, some sort of acid uh, during, during a meal or, or whatever. So um, when you actually look into the literature and you say, okay, what What's the evidence out there and how are people measuring, for instance, how are they measuring stomach acid in the first place? Um, 
Well, in when you look at the way this can be measured, of course, you can get a capsule. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, something that's called a pH capsule, the Heidelberg capsule, and you can uh, tether to a string, put it in the stomach, um, and you can actually look at the pH. It, it sends out a little radio signal to a computer, and you can actually see the pH in the stomach. And um, I don't know if you've done this, but this was somewhat popular uh, in some of the alternative medicine clinics for years. Yep. Uh, yep. People looking at that. Yes. And go ahead. Well, I, you know, I would refer to it. There was somebody here locally doing it. And there's also the string, the, the, the string tests that you, you could do in office. Um, I forget who created that. I want to go great. I actually have one in my cabinet. I still have a handful yeah. of them where you would do a colometric. You'd apply, you oh, know, right, yeah. it, pull it out. I don't know if you remember that one. So that was popular yeah. too some years ago. Right. So that, and that's very, that, of course, that's just a very generic sort of like a pH strip type test. Yep. Exactly. Where, whereas the Heidelberg or the pH capsule, sort of, you can measure, you can have it send every every 15 seconds, that, and you can see the change of, of the pH of the stomach, and um, that plus uh, other things like um, taking capsules or tablets that are that have something easily to measure, like let's say riboflavin, and but it, but the capsule or tablet itself is, is pH sensitive, so when you consume that based on the pH of the stomach, only a certain amount of riboflavin will end up in the urine, and then you can sort of measure that. Um, so that's, that's the way it's done in the literature. And when you look in the literature and ask the question, how many people have fasting, so sort of fasting levels of, of low stomach acid, and typically this is defined in literature as having a pH at fasting levels above three. So, you know, so right. usually you want, you know, somewhere below three, probably healthy people have a pH of fasting at around one. Um, so when you look at that, the literature tells us about 10% of the population um, seems to have fasting levels of hypochlorhydria. Um, and let me, let me just define that again, Tom, really quickly. So um, fasting optimal pH level is again, what? About, well, in, in healthy subjects, it should be about one to two. Okay. Um, but generically, they say less than three is less what, than three. what I think what people would say is sort of that mark in the sand when you'd be determined as hypochlorhydric when you're above three. Okay. All right. Got it. Okay. Um, but as we know, you know, optimal probably is going to be closer to one to two. Um, so if you look at the population studies, they say, you know, about 10% of the population may be above three at fasting levels. And this doesn't seem to be that much higher as you age. Um, there was, there was some groups like older Japanese women that had really higher levels for some reason, but generally what we see is about 10%. However, um, you know, you don't really need a lot of stomach acid when you're fasting. And so yeah. this is not a very good functional test. So even in the Heidelberg test, um, the best tests that are typically used is where you put the, the Heidelberg capsule in the stomach, you look at the pH, and then you use some sort of bicarbonate to quench the acid, and then you see how long it takes to reacidify the stomach. Um, and then this can be done actually in repeated bouts to kind of see how fast that occurs. And that's a really a more of a little more functional test. Um, so what I actually looked at is in the literature is, okay, so who's actually looking at that kind of information, let's say with aging um, or, or whatnot. And it turns out that I found two papers done by the same group at the University of Michigan where they took young individuals. They actually did this, the two studies a, a little bit apart from each other, but it was the same design. And they looked at young people and older people. And what they did is they did the Heidelberg test. Uh, they had a capsule in the stomach and they, and they gave them a meal. Unfortunately, the meal was not exactly what we would call a very uh, helpful meal. I think it was like a cheeseburger and hash browns. Uh, <laughs> but what they found was essentially that, uh, again, at fasting levels, both the older individuals and the younger individuals um, had similar uh, low pH, about one. Actually, it turned out that the older people had a slightly lower pH. So more acid actually, That's but you know, after they ate, um, they both, you know, saw their numbers jump to about five or six range, which is what you'd see when you eat a, a meal. Um, and the difference, however, was that in the younger individuals, they were able to reacidify very quickly, um, within an hour or even two hours, they were back down below two. 
a pH of two. Whereas the older individuals, it took them sometimes up to four hours or longer to get the pH back to its fasting levels. And so really, I, I coined the term functional hypochlorhydrate in the book to define this idea that, you know, looking at fasting levels, not just in this case, but, you know, fasting levels of other things as well, uh, we, we see postprandial glucose, you know, having a problem usually before we see fasting glucose. Well, here we're seeing that once you challenge the stomach, uh, the stomach acid production with a meal, as you age, seem to have less and less ability to reacidify. And so the question is, you know, where in that window um, do we start seeing, you know, protein digestion uh, being inhibited or the ability to break down and, you know, solubilize, you know, iron and calcium and zinc yeah. and, you know, be able to, you know, to reduce the, the levels of bacteria. And, and the answer is we don't know, but it seems like from this, from that, from those two uh, studies done in older and younger, that gradually the ability to reacidify to challenge is going down and likely that is driving some of the uh, decrease in bio bioavailability of certain nutrients and maybe some of the other GI issues that we would list as malabsorption. Well, listen, let me just, let me just ask you a couple of questions. First of all, I don't know that my in-office string tests that I experimented with have any reliability. Hence, you know, I don't really use it anymore. Obviously, I go, right. you know, Heidelberg is great, but it's really not done much. It's actually pretty right. onerous. And it's not, in fact, it's not really cheap. <laughs> it was expensive for me to refer my patients over there. Um, and so I generally go with clinical signs and, you know, signs and, and symptoms of, of hypochondria. Or I'll look at, you know, on a stool test, maybe, you know, increased, um, increased, uh, uh, compounds in the gut, these putrif these short-chain right. fatty acids that are produced, these specific ones. I mean, how how are we going to make this diagnosis in a reliable way? Do we just assume that it's happening? I mean, or are we looking at gas and bloating, et cetera? But in your read, how are we how are yeah. we nailing this down that it's actually happening? So in, in reality, you're right. Most people aren't doing the Heidelberg test. Uh, they're not looking at other, you know, in, you know, clinical measures, they're using sort of empiric uh, okay. or anecdotal kind of, uh, kind of things. Um, we know that some of the, the assumption that we can see in, let's say, a reduced protein digestion, maybe, like you said, putrefactive short-chain fatty acids, which are sort of a, a residue of having un undigested peptides, yep. um, that, that could be a, a sign and symptom, gas and bloating, these other kinds of things. Um, I think empirically, you know, Supplementing or giving betaine hydrochloride has been probably a very common yep. way that a lot of clinicians have done this. Um, well, and, doing the challenge, know, doing that whole challenge protocol and titrating up. Right. And the assumption is, and, and of course, like I wrote it right in the book, I actually kind of outline how clinicians usually give betaine hydrochloride at higher doses and kind of look at for symptoms and things like that. You know, there's really nobody that systematically looked at that and evaluated it in a sort of sort of a clinical trial to really evaluate the efficacy of that. Um, there's obviously thousands and thousands of clinicians that have done that and believe that that's a good measure of knowing when someone um, may need that additional acid and based on usually postprandial symptoms. Has anybody has anybody looked at you know using HCL just observing what exogenous HCL does to Heidelberg? I mean, has that been investigated at all? Probably. So, so that, that's an interesting question. So, you would assume that with all these thousands of people <laughs> over decades having done this, that somebody would have done that. And unfortunately, nobody in the functional medicine community seems to be overly interested in that data yet. Uh, but I did find um, drug companies that were interested in that. Mm -hmm. and, and the drug companies who are interested in that are companies realizing that there's a huge population on proton pump inhibitors, yep. which are obviously inhibiting stomach acid, and at the same time, giving drugs that require, you know, an acid environment for proper yes. bioavailability. So there was um, a couple different studies that were done where they took healthy subjects, in this case, put them on PPIs specifically to block stomach acid, right. and then to see what would happen when they gave them betaine hydrochloride, what happened to the stomach pH. And so they put Heidelberg capsules into healthy individuals, put them on PPIs. Well, they were on PPIs for several days prior to that. And then the morning of the study, they put them on the last dose in the PPI, 
stabilize their pH at about five. So they wanted to keep it at, at a hypochlorhydric place, which is obviously the, the, the intent of having a PPI. And then they gave them 1500 milligrams of betaine hydrochloride uh, in two capsules. Um, so two 750 milligram capsules. And what they saw was uh, the pH of the stomach went from about five to about 0.5 in about three minutes or four wow. minutes. So it was almost instantaneous. A few people took a little bit longer, but most people were, were down there below one in, in less than five minutes. Um, wow. And of course, because you still have the PPI on board, you know, it took a while, but they, they, you know, they quenched that. And so they went back up after about an hour to two hours, they were back to their pH of about five. And uh, they followed that study with a second study showing that indeed the, 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 acid soluble uh, drug that they were using um, did in fact absorb better when you combine yep. uh, sure. the PPI with the patinoid chloride. So we do know that it, it does acidify. We don't have good data on the combination of fa uh, not fasting, so a meal and patinoid hydrochloride. That's so, pretty, yeah, that's pretty remarkable when you consider that you know, we're, we're prescribing this whole titration. Capsules are generally somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 milligrams. And so, you know, right. we, I, literally, I talked to a new patient yesterday who had, you know, in, was, was, was taking with another clinician, she had, she was taking 15 caps. <laughs> Yeah. It was just, that's astonishing to me. And she, and you know, we look for that slight warmth sensation to indicate that, that, um, one's been taking too much and, and, uh, she wasn't experiencing that. So she kept increasing. And so finally the clinician who she was working with told her to stop at five caps. But, you know, even that from this interesting study, that's like all we've got suggests that three is, is, very sufficient. Although, as you point out, they weren't looking at it with food. I think that's a big deal. So listen, let me ask you another question. I, a couple questions. One, if you could send that reference, and then if anybody wants to read these, those two studies, I'll just pop it on the, on the site with this um, podcast. The other thing is, is that, you know, Prilosec is a top 10 drug in the United States. Everybody is on it. Every, you know, everyone's on this yeah. drug. So, um, we're, we've got this global hypochlorhydric situation. We're putting, we're, 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 and, and actually the explanation, the colloquial explanation given is always that patients are making too much stomach acid, which is, and so let's shut it down. Um, and yet we know from the research that you've just cited and everything you've just said, that is in fact not the case. People are hypochlorhydric. So what's going on here? So this, so the other side of that is, um, like you said, you know, the idea that um, the assumption is that when you're having, you know, esophageal reflux and you're getting the heartburn and the pain that that's associated, that that must be therefore due to overproduction of stomach acid. Yeah. And, um, and therefore, and, and the, the obvious reason we believe that is because if you lock stomach acid, the, the pain goes away. So yeah. it's, it seems very uh, intuitive when we think about it that way. But if you actually look at the data and you ask yourself the question, of course, using Heidelberg and other tests, um, actually this, this study was done at USC where they took 1,500, almost 1,600 uh, patients with symptoms of GERD and they looked at their average fasting gastric pH. And um, they found that there was really no difference between those who were suffering with GERD and those who weren't suffering with GERD, meaning there was no change in the stomach acid. The difference is, is they were having more reflux and it doesn't really matter what your stomach pH is. I mean, as, let's say relative one, two, three, or four or whatever, yep. all of that is too acidic for the esophagus. Yep. So even if it's not adequate for the stomach, if you're getting any reflux, you are going to have, uh, the esophagus is not, you know, designed, it's the, the cells are not designed to handle anything really that's not neutral. So yeah. the issue has nothing to do with the amount of acid that's being produced. It has to do with the fact that it's in an inappropriate place where there's no uh, mucus barrier, which is in the esophagus. So interestingly, when they looked at that, there's actually a study looked at that those individuals that had more supine, so as they're laying down more supine related um, reflux mm -hmm. or, or uh, GERD symptoms, 
they actually were statistically more likely to be hypochlorhydric. Now, okay. there's, there's some theory behind this, and that is if you're not making enough stomach acid, the stomach works harder and longer to digest the food before it releases it into the duodenum, and that extra and perhaps postural uh, effects as well as the, the extra working of the stomach actually produces more reflux. Um, obviously, that's not really been studied and looked at in detail, but that's the theory behind why somebody perhaps with lower stomach acid could get more reflux, even if that reflux, reflux aid is at four, or pH of four or five, that's still going to be a problem for the esophagus. So it has nothing to do with the notion that there's any relationship between low stomach acid production or high stomach acid production in this case and reflux. However, if you, if you completely shut off stomach acid production and, and your pH of your stomach is five or six, then you're going to reduce the likelihood that any reflux aid is going to cause symptoms. So there is a relationship between shutting off stomach acid altogether and having lower symptoms, but it really doesn't, as you recognize, doesn't address any root cause. The root cause is obviously something else, right? It's not high levels of stomach acid production. Yeah. That's just really, I mean, and we've known that in, in integrative medicine forever, that it's, that it's not, you know, unless there's some sort of, then there's a tumor, you know, present or something of that nature, which is, would be rare. Um, right. Uh, so there is something else going on. Um, hypochlorhydria obviously being, you know, a possibility here in, right. in, in, in some, uh, some of these cases, and then anything else to add to that? What else we might be looking at? Well, I, th I think that, I think the, the baseline of that is, um, you know, unfortunately, and, and as well, as you know, because there's so many people on these drugs, yep. um, getting them off of them and trying to convince them because there usually is a rebound, yes, all these is. factors that occur, um, and they haven't really changed their dietary patterns. They haven't changed whatever the underlying issues are. So figuring out what those likely are while you're tapering them off and doing the kind of things that you want to do is a challenge, but it's in the long run, it's more, you're more likely to get at those root causes. But there, you know, as you know, there, there's quite a few people that find it very difficult to get off PPIs, especially if they've been on them a while. And it's hard to get them not to re, not to believe that overproduction of acid is not a problem because as soon as they go off the PPI, their symptoms come back. Right. So that, that's, that boomerang idea is hard to get out of the clinician and the patient's mind. That's right. That's exactly right. And if they've got any, you know, damage to the esophagus and, you know, or, you know, any evidence of metaplasia, right. there's this, there's this really right. significant fear. So listen, um, root causes, just name some of the, some of the biggies that you uh, came across. Well, for, for GERD you were talking about or for, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, obviously anything postural, lower esophageal sphincter issues there, a lot of them are diet. I mean, sometimes yep. you got to find out some people have nightshade kind of intolerability. You have to look at some of those kind of things. Um, eating late at night and postural issues where you, where you don't have, uh, you know, obesity is part of that uh, mm -hmm. in, in some cases. Um, caffeine. So there's, you know, you have to start looking down the list um, some unusual things. Sometimes people look at peppermint uh, can sometimes uh, if it's not enteric coated or if you're using peppermint tea, uh, that can be a problem. So there's a, there's a number of different things that, you know, may be listed there um, that you want to look at. Um, we actually have a, a chapter in here that talks about that. And we deal with mostly lifestyle related issues, yeah. alcohol in, intake, you know, these, these are all the kind of things. I don't think I, in doing this uh, particular research, I came across anything spectacularly new. Uh, but I think a lot of times, because the PPI is so available and before that, the H2 blockers, people aren't even thinking anymore about sort of the, the original things that we always knew, the lifestyle inducers. And so I think going back and asking those questions, um, and I'm sure you, you might have others that, that you've come across, but those are things that I think a lot of people just have ignored, some of the things that we've known about for a long time. And I think in functional medicine, we do really a great, great, great job at addressing um, GERD and, and, and also, you know, in hypochlorhydria, you know, just sort of the collection, the constellation of issues here, um, you know, associated gastritis, et cetera. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think we do. Um, but yes, in some, 
some individuals, it can be extremely challenging to taper them off uh, their PPI. So let's talk about um, uh, enzyme function, pancreatic, okay. exocrine, um, status. Yeah, yeah, well, insufficiency, but just, you know, let's just give me the lowdown on um, changes to pancreatic function and, right. you know, what we might be looking at there. So, you know, when you start looking at uh, the clinical picture on uh, anything related to pancreas or pancreatic excrement insufficiency, it, it seems to be clinically related or, or diagnosed primarily by lipid malabsorption. Um, and perhaps because in humans, you know, we produce a lot of protease, a lot of amylase, but the amount of lipase that we produce is on the lower end. And as we progressively lose uh, pancreatic exocrine function, lipid absorption or, uh, seems to be the first sign of that. Um, whether or not it, it's just because it's easier to measure, that it's probably that case. So, um, so when you're thinking about like the overt signs of chronic pancreatitis or cystic fibrosis or something like this, typically you're looking at, um, you know, fat in a stool or other ways of measuring fat malabsorption related to low enzyme output. Um, and, you know, pancreatic excrement insufficiency. Um, a lot of those studies are, are not really that fun to do. You have to collect your stool for sometimes three days straight, uh, all your stool for three days straight. And, diet that has a very fixed level of fat in it so that we can so that you can measure how much is actually being absorbed versus how much is coming out of the stool. Obviously, that's not a, something that some people like to do or most people like to do. So as it turns out, probably the way that's the best now is uh, the measure in the, in the stool of um, fecal elastase. It's actually mm -hmm. pancreatic elastase one that you find in, in the feces. It's actually a protease, uh, but it, it, uh, so it's not a lipase, but it's a protease that generally is not degraded uh, by the other proteases. So it's very stable. And when you find uh, pro uh, pancreatic elastase in the stool, it's a very good measure of sort of the overall amount of enzymes that have come out of the pancreas. Um, and so this is very common. You see several labs uh, producing or, or ha have this test within their stool tests, uh, pancreatic elastase. And essentially that level, uh, if, it's, if it's really low, obviously it tells us that we have low levels of pancreatic enzyme output, and it is now somewhat diagnostic of the, the disease, you know, pancreatic uh, excrement insufficiency, or EPI sometimes it's called. Um, so but what, we've, what we know is that um, if you look in the literature and ask the question, well, who else has low levels, you know, if they're not diagnosed with um, PEI, what, who else has this? And there's a list of people. And, and what I discovered was that, again, as we age, there's yeah. a couple studies where younger individuals have a much higher level, maybe uh, a level of about 575. Yeah. Um, and as you age, it goes, it goes down and down, uh, maybe in your 50s and 60s, you're starting to see people below 200, even some people below 100, which is sort of like the, the fixed definition of sort of acute PEI. Um, uh -huh and maybe above 200, it's considered, quote, normal. In fact, you know, how many lab tests are thought to be normal when they're really not normal? Um, and so somewhere between 200 and 400 is likely a sign that the individual is producing less overall pancreatic enzymes and uh, likely could use some help. Uh, yeah. Obviously, in the case of PEI, the standard drug therapy, if you want to call it a drug therapy, is pancreatin or pancrolipase, uh, an animal-based concentrate of pancreatic enzymes given to them uh, in a various uh, forms. And those types of products also are available to clinicians as dietary supplements. Yep. Um, so that's really great. That's a, that's a very useful pearl, folks. Um, if you didn't catch that, you know, that optimal pancreatic function as measured by elastase one would be greater than 500. And that's what they've seen in younger individuals. And yet the reference limit for is, is at 200. So if you're looking at stool tests and you see, you know, your patient somewhere between 200 and 400, you know, as Tom just mentioned, that should be a flag that, you know, something is, is sub-functional. So what about, what about looking at fecal fats? Is that a useful marker? 
So I, I mean, I think I think that's going to correlate. I think uh, we. I don't know if there's. I mean, some of the labs will per perform that, but that's highly dependent on the meal. Yeah. So unless you're controlling the exact amount that's coming in, like I said, the actual way to measure it in the literature, uh, the gold, the old gold standard used to be 100 grams of, I think it's 100 grams of fat per day for three days straight, collect all the stool, and then they do a complete analysis of that to find out what's coming out. There's another way you can do it, which is a radio labeled uh, fatty acid, which you consume in sure. a breath test. So those are... But the, the ones that you would see, let's say, in the standard sort of stool analysis, CDSA type, uh, it, it might be, it, if you see it above reference range, um, that might be a clue when you're yeah. seeing other things. But unless there was a standard meal consumed, that data is a little bit limited in how you could interpret it. Although the reference ranges should be, you know, a variety of, you know, healthy individuals consuming a variety of different meals. So right. there may be a little bit of control for it there, but I hear you. So right. fecal fat, not a bad specimen to use, but just consider those caveats, not as reliable right. as the last day's one, which is really easy to get. Right. Um, all right, so let's talk about, um, I just, I want to talk about, uh, actually, let me just say one thing quick, and then I want to get into treatment. Um, we also see, and I think the literature suggests that certain, um, that, that certain changes, like certain certain bowel diseases are also associated with kind of ushering in pancreatic insu insufficiency. Me. So um, I think, and, I'll, and, and since you're, the literature is really fresh in your mind, I want to defer to this, but, you know, an IBD PEI association or an IBS PEI association, um, what have you, what have you noted there? Yeah, there really isn't, um, strong correlations uh, between those. I mean, you know, in the case of IBS, there's there's not a strong correlation with. Uh, I don't think I've seen anything with pancreatic elastase specifically that there's any groups. But what we do see is anywhere you the, the overt one would be celiac disease. So you do see that in celiac disease. But but if you think about how celiac disease creates sort of um, this villus atrophy and the, the villi have enzymes that help break down the, the peptides, uh, the, excuse me, the proteases that come out. So uh, trypsin needs to be hydrolyzed in order to be activated mm -hmm. uh, from trypsinogen. And that's actually an enzyme found on the brush border. Um, in the, and so if you have villus atrophy, you have much less uh, enzyme activity. So you see individuals with celiac disease, the comparison is there. Now, we also know that other inflammatory conditions in the gut could cause villus atrophy. Probably at some level, they also reduce, uh, they also reduce you know, the enzyme output. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that I've actually seen you know, statistically linked uh, relationships between them. Um, I think probably because that hasn't been looked at, not because it may not be there. Right, right. Okay. Like, like I would assume it, perhaps, especially probably Crohn's yes. and, um, and, and uh, UC, probably Crohn's more than UC would probably have some uh, effect on PEI, but it may take a while be, to, 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 to know that because mm -hmm. if you're measuring pancreatic elastase, until you get you know, that level down to a certain amount, you may not see sort of an overt sign of that, uh, but you probably have less efficient digestion. But also, in many cases, bowel transit time is going to have probably more of an effect on that, on, on digestion and absorption. So you might have enough enzymes, but if you have a very quick bowel transit time, you yes. don't have time to digest. So there's other factors yes. than just pancreatic uh, sufficiency that would affect the digestion and absorption eventually. Right. All right. Okay. Um, thanks. <clears throat> Let's talk about intervention. Okay. What's your recommendation for you've identified insufficiency using lab and, and clinical? Um, so what's our go-to? So, I mean, right now there's the only intervention that we have really is to add back enzymes mm -hmm. um, at this point. I mean, I, I should say looking at um, the, the, obviously the diet, other sorts of things, bowel transit time, like we just mentioned, if there's other issues there, yep. um, you want to deal with those. But from a direct intervention standpoint, overt PEI, there are pharmaceutical 
uh, approved pharmaceuticals that are pancrolipase products. Essentially what pancrolipase is, is a combination of protease, amylase, and lipase from uh, porcine, from, from pork, uh, pig, uh, pancreas, um, that has a slightly higher ratio uh, of lipase activity than, than, let's say, a standard pancreatic product. Um, but available to anybody uh, would be the same thing, pancreatin, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a combination that can be bovine or porcine. Yeah. Um, and then you could augment that with, uh, from a protein digestion standpoint, you can augment that with bromelain, which is a pineapple enzyme, papain, which is a papaya enzyme, um, and a series of, of, sometimes they're called vegetable, but really they're fungal analog enzymes. Uh, interestingly, plants and you know, fungi don't break down lipids very well. So, you know, most of them are found on wood or woody type uh, substances. So, the, you know, the best way to get lipase is actually through the animal sources uh, because we don't get a lot of lipase activity outside the animal world. Not a lot of other uh, organisms consuming a lot of fat. So the blend of all those options, um, sometimes we can add pepsin, which is a, uh, an enz uh, a protease enzyme derived from uh, pork stomach lining because that comes from the stomach lining. Um, sometimes you'll notice that people add ox bile or yeah. you know, bovine bile to help create a, a, a more digestion with, with fat um, and or coloretics and cologogs, which are plant, mostly plant compounds that stimulate bile production uh, and bile secretion. Yes, so, such as, give me a, give me. Uh, well, I mean, the classic one uh, would be like artichoke, Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, that's probably the, the one that we think of the most in, in the literature as far as its ability to stimulate um, milk thistle, dandelion root, or others that are very common. Um, I mean, actually, fat is a choloretic and cholagog itself, and yeah. bile is a choloretic and cholagog. But from, an ant, from a plant standpoint, those are probably the ones that people think of the most. There's a few others that are used in other, but I'd say those are the three that are at the most use in, in the Western medicine or western herbal medicine so in your opinion do any of these actually you know what there's a whole world of enzymes there's almost there are <laughs> there are so many different kinds of enzymes out there in the landscape you know claiming yeah. to do myriad things but just speaking about enzymes for digestion i mean what are the ones that really jump jump up the list for you as being kind of the effective yeah, Work I, think, I think clinicians. I think clinicians should have a few in, uh, in their formulary uh, because I think, uh, and, and uh, you know, I think you, you really should have a animal-based enzyme product, and those are the ones that have been used the longest. They've got the best track record, and they're the closest to replacing human pancreatic enzymes that we have. Um, so pancreatin, probably a high concentration, like an ADEX or a full strength, um, something like that, um, and and then, you know, obviously there are people that for whatever reason, religious reasons, other reasons, don't want to have animal products and they should have sort of uh, probably the other gamma would be the other side of that would be a sort of a list of fungal analogs. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes these are, these are called veggie enzymes, but they're really technically fungal analogs. Sometimes they'll put bromelain and papain in there. Um, right. So I think, I think um, clinicians should have several different and maybe, maybe even several different doses uh, mm -hmm. of some of those. And then, uh, Again, we have to see how the how the patient feels after taking them, and, right. and that's going to be probably the best. Uh, I mean, if you just go back to like Beano. I mean, it's, I, I, you know, we're advertising that yep. product. I don't know if that's the name of it, but you know, that's a fungal analog, uh, beta galactosidase that breaks down you know some of the carbohydrates in beans that helps you know, prevent uh, fermentation, yep. and it's we know it works, and a lot of people use it. it, it it's very effective. Right. Um, so that those, those I think can be very effective and, and the symptoms and those, in that case, people can noticeably notice the symptom changes that they have. Um, pat pain, if you go the other way, you know, a meat tenderizer, you actually put it on the meat and, you know, it, it starts digesting uh, the protein. So we, we know functionally they work. The question is at what dose does the patient feel some sort of symptom relief? And that's kind of where the experiment is. And I actually think, um, 
as, as I've been doing, because I actually do some product development as well, I'm actually making a recommendation that, you know, that we use smaller amounts of digestive enzymes, but we use them multiple times through the meal, meaning mm-hmm. uh, uh, once, once the, because obviously all of these enzymes have to be, you know, mixed with the meal itself, and it comes out in the duodenum as the meal leaves uh, the stomach. And uh, so combining them, perhaps eating at the beginning of the meal, maybe one in the middle and even one maybe at the end of the meal is mm-hmm. a better way to do it than trying to do it all at the beginning or the, what we used to tell people, you know, take your digestive enzymes with the first bite. Well, actually it may be better taking it in the middle and end of the meal. Yeah, that than makes sense. The, at, because then it's mixing in the, where the pH of the stomach is maybe higher, like five or six, the enzymes won't be destroyed as easily. And they're likely to mix with the food right before they leave and go into duodenum. Makes total sense. It does. And we've often advised patients, actually, it's kind of an sort of an older approach, which yeah. is, it makes sense, you know, that, you know, you take, you divide your HCL up throughout the meal and doing it with enzymes makes a lot of sense as well. And for right. the veggie, for the quote veggie enzymes or the fungal analogs you're talking about, one could uh, use cologogs with them or, um, you know, recommend taking, taking some sort of a higher fat meal with it to get, you know, to meet the more of the needs. Right. Folks who right. So, right. Obviously in that case, if you're, if you're trying to, to help with, uh, and you want to stay away from animal products, you can't add ox bile or whatever, but you could add, um, you could add, like you said, cholorex and cologogs to stimulate mm-hmm. bile um, and maybe some natural fats in the meal, like olive oil or something like that. Yep. Yep. Um, now, listen, let me just ask you before we, before we move on and talk a little bit about probiotics. Now, as far as the HCL titration that we all use in functional and integrative medicine, do you, I mean, does that still, does that make sense to you or is in your careful read on um, all things hypochlorhydria suggest yeah. a different approach? Well, I mean, outside of uh, actually measuring, yeah. um, uh, what's happening there. It's a little bit difficult to know. So I think um, for the number of thousands of clinicians that have, that have used that technique, um, and I think relatively safely, we haven't really heard of a lot of sort of backfiring. I mean, obviously we That's don't right. recommend it. We don't recommend it with gastric ulcers or some other things like that. Um, but I, I would say right now, it, it seems like a safe sort of empiric way to do it. I tend to caution on going too high. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and at, at this time, I'm not sure where that level is. You know, if we think of that one study that was 1500 milligrams, you know, I'm generally cautious once you get above 3000 milligrams of anhydride chloride yep. that, and, and I will say that's somewhat arbitrary. I don't have hard data to say that that level is, you know, going to be you know, the, the line in the sand, but it seems like once you start getting above 3000 milligrams per meal, you want to be more cautious. And I'm not convinced, uh, and I don't, I don't know of any data that would suggest that all patients that are consuming too much betaine hydrochloride are going to get this, you know, you know, burning sensation or kind of a nauseated feeling. I just, you know, that's, that's the, that's the, what I've been hearing from clinicians all these years, but I, I don't really have any way to confirm that besides just believing what they're, so, so while I do outline uh, the, the, what I call the, the basic protocol that's commonly used in the book. I, I'm very cautious about sort of relying upon that as the only way to do this. Right. Well, that little, that study that you happen to find in the drug industry is, 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 is interesting. And you right. know, I, well, and, you know, as we've seen with, you know, with quote leaky gut or dysbiosis, I mean, those were, uh, those are those are concepts that we've used in integrative medicine forever, and there was you know there was just really no data on them at all. And now there's right. a leap in in investigating both, and they're both right. very well substantiated at this point in the game. So hopefully, you know, these two will be recognized for their importance because clearly it's um, significant that we look at both. Right, you know, what's right. happening with um, with hypochlorhydria and and pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, you know, early right. pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. And right. I would imagine at some point we start to investigate these in a more careful 
right. in, a, in a more careful way. Yeah. And, and one, one, uh, one thing I mentioned in the book, which I think is interesting, is that because you're dealing with so many people with PPIs or, or that, and, and maybe you, they are not interested in going off of them, the one thing that we do see from that one uh, paper is that if you want to improve digestion, at least marginally during a meal, um, it seems to be safe to give them 1500 milligrams or so of betaine hydrochloride if they're on a PPI to help them with mealtime digestion um, because, you know, you're basically going to be back to the pH of five or six you know, within an hour. And, uh, you know, anyway, so, you know, so you, there may be a functional way to use betaine hydrochloride in PPI users during a meal only because you know they're going to rebound back to where they were protected before. So it's not like you have to really worry about that uh, issue. That's, um, an, so that, that's a really, that's a powerful pearl. And I did ask you for that uh, paper earlier, I think. So we'll, yeah. we'll just post, we'll post that citation folks. If you want to consider using mid meal, um, 1500 milligrams of HCL for your patients, understanding that they'll, you know, go back to a higher pH rapidly. That's, right. that's, that's useful. That might actually help in the, you know, in tapering. Right. Um, okay. Let's talk about, this is really helpful. I, I appreciate this uh, uh, quite a bit. So let's talk about probiotics. Um, okay. You know, there are of course a million of them. And I remember when I was at the laboratory and we released the first, um, DNA analysis, you know, using using PCR analysis of the of stool. I re, I really thought that we would start at that time. There was not the first release. The research had been doing it for a long time, but it was the first clinical available test using DNA analysis of the stool. And I thought we would be at that point leaping forward in uh, really being able to prescribe with a greater precision probiotics. And I was, you know, incredibly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so wrong about that. In fact, what I learned from that experience in the lab was how important food is. Not just the quote prebiotic food, but you know, a healthy, robust, balanced, big diet in general and you know, taking time to eat it and so forth. But it really hit that home for me. But we still but probiotics absolutely continue to have their place and research continues to emerge. And I know you've been deep, deep, deep into this area. Um, you know, you can Google probiotics online and you'll see many, many huh. clinicians who are famous coming forward and saying this brand is the best. Absolutely. You will get 100% better if you take it. And you know, you'll so many, there's so much misinformation and, and claims out there. And so they are important, but what do we take? What do we do? How do we do it? You know, what have you, uh, what have you been thinking about in this world? So, I, you know, Going back to, you know, the idea that, you know, we get, if we knew what was in the gut, we could all of a sudden be able to prescribe or, or yes. uh, figure that out. And what we've learned is that there's so, so much more that we didn't realize was going on in the gut. And um, so our technology is growing and, you know, our ability to detect uh, a, a wider array of organisms. And for now, we're just talking about the bacteria, but obviously there's so much more we're going to learn about viruses and, and the, the bacteria bacteriophages, which are viruses yes. that infect bacteria. So there's like layers upon layers upon layers of things that are there. Right. Um, so one of the things, there's a couple of caveats that, that, it, that we've learned over the years that are interesting. One is simply that stool analysis um, is, a, is essentially trying to figure out what's going on in the house by looking at the garbage can. And so, yes, what comes out in the stool is highly, highly represented by the bacteria living in the distal colon and right. not very well represented by those that are, that are living the, the much lower percentage of bacteria that are growing um, in the small bowel. But may, those organisms may have a much more profound effect on, let's say, the immune system because they have a uh, much closer access to the immune cells of, in the small intestine than any of the bacteria living in the colon. Uh, which are mostly doing, let's say, fermenting in the lumen and doing other important things, but maybe not the same type of things. So I think one of the things we're learning is stool analysis is a, is a surrogate marker and oftentimes a poor surrogate marker of what is going on in the overall sets of microbiomes in the gut. 
Um, and so I think that's one aspect. I think, you know, obviously we've learned about all these little micro niches where certain bacteria maybe are highly concentrated, but if you compare them to the overall gut, they're almost minuscule and hardly there at all. Um, and so if you're just looking at their DNA, um, you know, the, the new thing was, okay, you know, the old plating idea of, you know, what, what can we plate out on our Petri dish? You know, a lot of these bacteria don't even grow on Petri dishes, so mm-hmm. we're, we're missing them. So looking at their DNA tells us something, but, you know, even that is limited. And so there's a lot of debate about, you know, what right. we should actually be measuring, what ratios, is it, is it the phylum level, is it the, you know, enterotypes, is it, you know, certain species, whatever. And then on the other side of that, um, we have probiotics. So we have these organisms that we're able to, you know, grow in these, you know, obviously huge uh, facilities so that we can make them in high commercial available so we can dry them down and put them in capsules and and consume them orally. And like I say to most people is probiotics represent a very, very, very small slice of the overall diversity within the gut. And they're, they're highly domesticated versions of their wild type originators. Right. And so one of the reasons why we, we have limited, you know, limited ability to change the gut with, you know, the, the handful of probiotics that we have is because of the, what I just said, they, they represent a small slice of the pie. And also because of their ability to be grown and, and manipulated and, and all these sort of things, they're really not the same. Um, we know that, you know, human genomes, you know, what, what genes are expressed and what genes are not expressed change. Well, if you, if you put the original lactobacilli or whatever, let's pick lactobacillus acidophilus or something growing in the, in the gut, having to compete for nutrients and compete against all these sorts of things going on, they're going to express a different genetic profile than uh, this monoculture given all kinds of nutrients in a big stainless steel vat that's able to grow, uh, but you're, you're optimizing everything in its life. And so it doesn't have to produce the same sort of genes, um, and it may be genomically slightly different than um, than what's. It, we know that they're genomically different than than those that were originally isolated, let's say in humans or in the soil. Right. So what that means generally is that we're we have we are limited, but surprisingly, adding back probiotics can still have dramatic effects because. Yeah. I think it's because they create what I call a commensal friendly environment. They tip the scales in favor of other commensals. Now they might have some of their own activities, obviously, but they, they tip, the, tip the gut in favor of commensal activity that is positive for the host. So they're not, they're not apparently colonizing or, or are um, they? Well, I consider, I can, right now, all probiotics that we know of, and this includes the soil-based organisms and all, you know, spore formers and all these kind of things, including all the bipedo and lacto, they are, they should all be considered transient. Yeah. Meaning they, whether or not they colonize or, or can attach, they never seem to really create a permanent colony. And I think part of the reason that that disturbs a lot of people is they don't quite understand that there is a high percentage and maybe 25 to 30% of the microbiome, which is transient, meaning that's, that's what it does. It's supposed to come in, have some activity and float on through and do fermentation, do whatever, and just move on out. It, it's, they stay in the lumen for the most part. Maybe they attach slightly to the mucus uh, layers, but they're, they're intended to be transient. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, why we have this sort of flexibility in the, in, and, and the influence of our, our diet can be so immediate is because a lot of these transient microbes are, in, are part of the, the overall uh, system. So I, I have where I talk about the idea that there's a core microbiome. These are, these are organisms that are much more permanent and don't turn over very much in individuals unless you blast them with antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Then you have sort of this, um, then you, on the outside, you have this transient uh, microbiome, which is, you know, fluctuating on a regular basis. And then you have sort of this intermediate, you know, sort of seasonal where you might see slow changes in that microbiome over time. 
Um, I call that a variable microbiome because it, it varies a little bit based on the season or the diet a little bit. Uh, but I think sometimes we just forget that, you know, up to maybe up to 20% of the, of the microbiome is transient yeah. and, and probiotics are a real part of that. And food, food organisms, whether going back to fermented foods and things like that, I don't typically refer to the microbes in fermented food as probiotics, although some people do. Um, but they, they are still part of that transient microbiome when you're, con when you're consuming those fermented foods. So, I mean, would you, would you call probiotics in their actions somewhat like prebiotics since they're basically influencing the course of the microbiome there? I mean, is that um, fair or are they doing I'm, more than prebiotics? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm kind of a stickler when it comes to nomenclature, so I wouldn't do that because it would create a lot of confusion. A lot of confusion. Um, but action-wise, would but, you say? But it, right, and that's why I like the idea. It, it, it promotes a commensal-friendly environment, but yep. – um, in, in the sense of a prebiotic, uh, obviously we think of those as, you know, fibers or other components. Although there are, there are, there's a company uh, that's trying to sell a product that's actually a bacteriophage, a virus that, yep. that infects. And they're, they're, they refer to it sometimes in their literature as a prebiotic because it promotes certain growth of, of supposedly good bacteria. Again, that's going to be, that's going to be very confusing if we kind of shift terms like that. But yeah, I think, I think the idea of probiotics is, I mean, there are some that might have a slightly different effect because of their specific species or strain. They might, let's say, produce some enzyme or have some sort of, uh, uh, produce some sort of protein that can particularly kill off some sort of pathogen. But I would say the, the bulk of the, the species and strains of probiotics, you know, they share about 70 to 80% of the same sort of overall benefit and that is what they do for other non-probiotic commensal organisms living in the gut so um in in the just in the remaining few minutes that we've got just talk to me about um you know how we want to dose and okay you know what are you, what strains are you thinking about as being the most effective and you know do we go with single strains and that kind of thing right so, I mean, this is obviously, when you get into literature on this, it's, it can be quite confusing because yeah. um, you would wish that, let's say if somebody had a series of IBS patients or IBD patients or whatever, and you go in the literature, you, you assume that, well, they've, they've tested all, all strains or all species of lactobacillus and all bifidal strains, and they've somehow arrived at the ones that work best. Um, when you start looking in the literature, you find the exact opposite. What typically happens is, you know, people find, they, get, they, they do a, a research trial, they, they get their IRB to approve a, a clinical trial, and they pick some product. And oftentimes you look and like, why did they choose the strains or the product they chose at the dose they chose? And the answer, mm -hmm. you don't have any idea. Right. Okay? But if three, let's say three or four labs do it, and one of them has a positive outcome, and the others, let's say, don't have a positive outcome, and it could be for any number of reasons, nothing to do with the product or the dose, <laughs> then all of a sudden the next group of people that write their grant proposal say, well, we want to use the one that, was, that worked, and then all of a sudden you start getting the, sort of the same strains being used for that particular condition. And then when you go back and say, well, how often was this strain really compared to other strains in that outcome? And you find out it, is, it almost never has been. So I'm a little bit cautious in trying to say that there are certain strains that have really been proven to have specific outcomes in specific types of patients because most of that is by default because there are not a lot of other comparative, comparative trials. I will say that when, and, and the fact that you do see some very different strains being, being having positive outcomes in a clinical trial with the same type of patient population as a completely different strain tells me that there probably is a little bit more flexibility than, than most marketers would, would lead. Um, I typically, I typically think that based on the way that we, we get microbes in the diet and even the literature that using multiple species at a time is probably more logical. Uh -huh. Um, and probably it would make sense, uh, to use, you know, lactose strains and bifidose strains, and maybe even adding on, you know, there's a couple strep strains and, and maybe like the, the, the yeast uh, Saccharomyces boulardii. But we don't have a lot of options. We don't have like this wide range of, 
you know, thousands of different species, we only have, like I said, a very small handful. Um, and so try to create a diversity of that um, is probably a better approach um, than sort of just trying to find the one strain that is going to be, that could possibly work. It used to be people would say, well, I'll, you know, I'm going to give lactobacillus acidophilus for three months and then I'm going to switch over to, you know, bifidobacterium and I'm going to switch to, uh, you know, lactobacteriae. I'm going to, and I think that's a holdover from when early on in the early 90s and early 2000s, there was only single strain products available. And right. so people were doing that back in those days. And it sort of made sense because you didn't have all these multi-strain products available. The fact right. that we have these multi-strain products available tells me that's probably where we should go. And then I think dosing, um, you know, we've got products that are dosed like 1 billion or less all the way up to, as you know, you know, 200, 300 billion. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of the doses using high dose therapy are going to the trillions. Yeah. Um, and what I think I've learned is there's, there's only a handful of dose response trials where they actually take a, a patient group, give them a low dose, give them a high dose, and give them placebo and then look at the difference. Most of that data has been on uh, related to antibiotic associated diarrhea. And in both cases, the higher dose was was statistically better than the lower dose. However, in one study, the high dose, low dose difference was 17 billion versus 4 billion. Mm. And in another study, it was a 100 billion versus 50 billion. Mm. And they were both effective. So at least in some cases, in the case of antibiotic-associated diarrhea and C. diff, it does seem like higher doses Maybe have a slightly better. It's um, interesting because if you really think about it relative to the trillions of players in the gut, even a quote high dose is like nothing. I mean, it's sort of interesting to me that we actually right. see it making, yeah. you know, but as, but I do, I also have experienced that. Um, you're right. You had one more thought on that one. I was just going to say that clinicians should, should be willing to, to consider different doses yeah. Realizing that, you know, just to say this product didn't work, whatever, I think you should try different doses and yeah. do it long enough to be able to say, you know, I, I think this one is either not going to work and, and be able to be flexible to switch out to something else. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the fact of the matter is, it, I have not, in, or in my experience, while, so, so while, you know, just understanding the amount that's growing in our gut, it seems like if we even throw 100 billion or 200 billion at our patients, that's still a, you know, that's a drop of water in an ocean that it shouldn't make a difference. But the fact of the matter is for some of my individual, my patients who are pretty sensitive, if I, you know, like my IBD patients in particular, I need to start them low and slow. I mean, some of them can really flare up with probiotics that you think should be be fabulous with. So there is an argument that I've certainly experienced clinically for, um, you know, for going lower and slow. And and I agree with you with the multiple strains. Let me ask you one more question and then we're going to head home. And that's the, you know, the soil bacteria, the so-called soil organisms that have been really pretty popular um, with my patients. And so they hear about them on a line and so forth and they come in and and tell me that they've really done well with them. And um, if they do well, I'm like, you know, that's great. Continue. Um, I did experiment with prescribing them and didn't, again, see any marked difference uh, as compared to anything else I'm doing. But do you have any comments on those? Well, the frustrating thing with most of the these products is that um, they're a bit of a mystery of what exactly is in them. Yeah. And uh, we actually, I was actually talking with, uh, I was at the International Probiotics Association meeting last year, and I was talking with the, the lead researcher at FDA on genetic typing of probiotics. And he was scratching his head saying he wasn't sure how to even evaluate the products because normally you, you list the organisms that are in there in the, in the product by the amount that they're supposed to be in. You know, so if we have a product of five probiotics, we say, you know, we have the most lactobacillus acidophilus at the top of the list. Well, you've seen some of these products, they have like 40 different organisms supposedly and they're in alphabetical order. Right. Well, obviously the bacteria aren't in alphabetical order from high to low in, in there. So, um, so we don't really know how to evaluate them. And the majority of the, the, bac- the bacteria that are listed on the label, whether they're in the product, we don't know, but listed on the label, are, don't fit the, the, what we call the traditional definition of probiotic, which requires that they have some proven benefit in human subjects. Some of these have never been tested in human subjects. 
So what I think is happening is people are saying, you know, we're taking soil-based organisms. I'm not even, we're not even sure how they're, they're, they're not able to grow them. So, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be disparaging and say they're just dirt in a capsule, but it's possible it's just dirt in a capsule because yeah, if you go to you find dirt, they're gonna, you're going to find organisms, but not every organism that's found in soil is a human uh, benefit. So I, I'm very skeptical, I guess, of some of these products and almost none of them have had any formal clinical trials um, and evaluation of the organisms that's in them. So based on that, I, I find it very difficult to give any comment on it because it's just that there's no data that I can evaluate, and which is a little frustrating when the, the pool of data for probiotics generally is very large, but the, the data that we have for them is almost non-existent. Right, right, right. So um, shelf-stable probiotics, are those reasonable? Have we been successful in? Yeah, so, so there's been a lot of technology invested in companies, uh, not only in the, the manufacturing of the probiotic organism in the preparation uh, for freeze drying or, or whatever to, to make them stable, but also in the manufacturing process to reduce humidity and temperature, um, including, you know, desiccants in the bottle and, and even some fancy bottle desiccants, which are like the bottle itself is a desiccant, whatever. So we've been very successful. And obviously companies have to do a little overage. They have to add a little more probiotics to last a year or whatever. But I tell people that, you know, uh, so the reason we do that is because we realize everybody can't carry a refrigerator everywhere with them. So we, we try as manufacturers to reduce the need for refrigeration when, when possible. And so that's, those are quotes shelf stable at relative. I mean, you don't want to stick them on your dashboard in a hundred degree weather. That's, you know, that's a bad idea. So you want to be somewhat careful with them in what we call room temperature. Um, they should be pretty stable, but you also want to, I, I always recommend people buy small bottles that you, you will use up in a month or you know, the time frame that you're gonna use them. This is, yeah. not, this is not the time to go to Costco or Walmart and buy a, a year's supply. Um, it's like I tell people, do you buy a year's worth of bread at a time? No, you, you buy a loaf of bread at a time or you're, think of these as, as short-term sort of things. And so um, we should treat them a little, perhaps a little more careful than we treat other dietary supplements. Perfect. Thank you. All right. We've covered a ton of material and I really appreciate you joining me today. I look forward for, to, you know, having another conversation um, because you've just done so much work. You're a real asset to, um, to the field. So thank you. Okay. It was great to be with you.